and I guess forgiveness can mean a lot of things, but I can also say that I haven't forgiven the people who never have owned up or recognized what the harm that they have done. You know, like, like, I mean, I've, I don't live in New York. Things were pretty bad here too, though. Um, you know, we had ski passes, theater tickets, like all kinds of stuff that we weren't allowed into the, you know, into the venue and didn't, weren't getting a refund. Even my wife lost her license. She's an oh, acupuncturist. No. Yeah. She lost like the state of Rhode Island required vaccination to keep your license as an acupuncturist. So she lost her license. Uh, oh. We had to take our child out of school because we weren't willing to put him in mask world every day. Um, you know, we, um, I mean, I lost my, my, you know, my publisher denounced me yeah. to millions of people <laughs> with yep. direct email, like blasting out to everybody that I was an anti-Semite and yeah, information, you know, I mean, it's not like, it's not like I was untouched by it. Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, yeah. it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome again, Charles Eisenstein. You all know who he is. And uh, welcome, Charles. Uh, happy to be here, Tessa. Really good to be back. <laughs> and so today we are going to talk about the interesting topic, conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And the reason I wanted to talk to you, Charles, is that uh, you published an article about conspiracies and it caused a bit of an upheaval. And uh, I thought about the topic a lot and uh, about your article. And then I wrote my own article about conspiracies. So kind, kind of in response, but without really mentioning your article. And I think a lot of the heated debate about talking points is more about the debate about psychological state. And maybe on one day we are all conspiratorial explanations on another day we're annoyed and so depending on the day we can write differently and i think that there's really no disagreement in principle so i wanted to and, and i like you so i wanted to have a very very happy human conversation about that and get your thoughts yeah yeah i'll start where kind of where, where, where you just started with um just like the fact of our bewilderment at all of this that that like you were saying, like on one day, it looks like it is so tightly, deliberately orchestrated. And another day, it looks like hysteria and foolishness. And, um, and another day, maybe it's a mix of all of those things. Uh, in, in that essay that you're referring to, I was trying to make, I think, a point that was a little bit too subtle for the listening um, available when, when passions are heated. Because I wasn't saying that there's no you know, criminality going on, that there's no coordination between big tech and government and intelligence agencies, you know, and pharma companies and academia. Like, I think all of that is happening. But what I was referring to is what I call the big C, the capital C conspiracy, which uh, basically says that everything is happening as part of this tight orchestration of events. And that therefore, the solution to our problems is to root out the conspiracy. Like there is a single thing that we can blame all of our troubles on, which in my mind is very similar to the mentality of uh, the virus that, I mean, here we have 50 years of degenerating health, uh, rising chronic disease, uh, despair, autoimmunity, addiction, uh, obesity, like all of these things. That, that we can't blame on an external enemy. And now all of a sudden, here comes a virus. 
and everybody can then focus their anxiety um, and blame onto this one thing and society goes crazy. So like that, that attitude of find the one bad thing that's the cause of all of our problems, which is also the mentality of climate change, find the one bad thing that we can blame ecological decay on, like that, I'm, I'm suspicious of that, whether it's true or not. And then the other thing, um, it, it's, it's that whether or not there is an overarching conspiracy, we still have to ask, why are we so susceptible to it? And the reason that we are susceptible to it is the same as the alternative explanation of mob mentality, mass formation, hysteria, and opportunistic um, exploitation of those things by um, ruthless and uh, malicious powers. So that's like <clears throat> part of the thesis in a nutshell. Sorry to have gone on so long. No, 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 no. I mean, like, I'm going to go for even longer right now because okay. I know how it goes. You start with one thing and then you have to explain the world, the universe and the meaning of life because otherwise the answer is not complete. So I know exactly the feeling. So it is interesting because this is something I've thought about a lot. Uh, even when I was a child, not necessarily, I didn't know the word conspiracy and I didn't even know anything about the fancy words. But I guess philosophically speaking, I think all of it can exist at the same time. And I suspect that we actually agree on that because I think that people in very high chairs can have extremely bad and evil ideas about their vision of our future. Like for, for a fact, you know, we've dealt as a humankind with so many massacres and you know the, the recent one with nazi germany and what was done to the indigenous people and many 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 completely horrible things they were planned like all of those things they were planned and like with anything there's multi-directional action so one, somebody has to plan it somebody has to wish for it somebody has to do things to make it happen and then on the other end there has to be witting or unwitting cooperation and people, if they're not really susceptible to, well, essentially dark magic of some sort, uh, metaphorically speaking, then it's much harder to actually trick them. Of course, then there's violence and that, that is a tool that usually works. And all of it is extremely multidirectional. So I think the way I think about it is, yes, I, I mean, from policy papers that I've been reading for years and from talks, I, I think that there are very, very evil ideas and evil, again, what is good, what is evil, that's this whole other kind of worms, but bad for us, evil as in really bad for most of the people living on earth. So they do have those ideas. They do have ideas about depopulation and they see us as bugs. And throughout history, typically that has been aimed at a particular demographic, although I have to say feudal overlords didn't treat their peasants very well either, so they also saw them as ants. And so that is happening on the one hand, and that, but then on the other hand, there's all the usual things like corruption and greed and confusion and all sorts of politics and personal motives, and nobody can solve that. That has always existed and probably always will. And then there is also some randomness. I 
don't know. Well, I think that's a very complicated complicated topic. But depending on individual choices of each participant, from the biggest one in the highest chair to the smallest one, how they treat their child. I mean, somehow all of this works into the big picture, and this complex dance yields a result in the end. But all of those forces do exist, and I do like the definition of uh, well, my friend Stephen Newcomb, who is a native philosopher. I mean, jokingly, he says, "Well." I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but I believe in conspiracies, but I believe in long range plans made in secret, which is kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I think all of it exists at the same time. But the biggest point, and I'm sorry, I'm going for even longer, like I said, uh, the biggest, well, my personal grudge is not uh, believing in this or that or the other. It's, it's arguing about talking points, because I think everybody's so wound up, like, and so worked up and so just... It's almost we have a religious mentality about everything. So now, like I personally, I can be friends and I mean, like actual real life friends with people who completely disagree with me, even about the entire pandemic. Like, for example, I have a friend who who, who really saved me many years ago and like really, no joking, like really did really amazing things that helped me survive. And and he, he went full with COVID, like full, full on. He loves Biden. He, he loves the vaccine. Oh, he loves the thing uh, and everything. And like completely, completely but we talk to each other. And, you know, occasionally I tell him what I think. I don't think he doesn't even try to tell me what he thinks, more or less. I mean, only in response because I mean, he knows my views. But in the end, we go, you know what? I disagree with you, but I love you. And I'm grateful for all you did for me. And he says, yeah, I mean, and I completely disagree with you, but I love you. And I know you're a good person. And, like, you know, time will tell. And I think this is the only available method of handling disagreements, assuming that there is sincerity. If there's no sincerity, then, you know, screw it all. Then it, that's another, another matter. But if there's sincerity... Because what am I going to do? Like, you know, brainwash him, make him believe what I believe. That's stupid and that's evil, actually. That's disrespectful of free will. And so now everybody's so worked up and everything is a topic of religion. If there a virus or no virus, is I mean, like called like Desmet thing, like whether mass formation, uh, who, I mean, all of it. And then now this week it's forgiveness. Like, should we forgive people and not forgive people? And all, all of it has to be black and white. And I think this is like, I don't appreciate the, like, I understand where it comes from because especially with all the hurt that has been done upon like the unvaxxed, this is, I mean, the pain is tremendous and the feeling is completely logical. But then I do think that we own healing to ourselves even though it can be very difficult and very illogical and very mysterious. And then we can go and like do things or at the same time, but at least healing of ourselves is primary. And if that's taken care of, then all those stupid talking point debates will just go away without doing much about it. Done. Yeah. So I'm thinking about your friend uh, who totally disagrees with you and you're like, okay, we disagree on this, but we still love each other. We're still friends. <clears throat> and then what if what if he comes back and says, or she, um, and probably many people listening have had this experience. Yes, we're friends, but you can't bring your children to my house because uh, your family's not vaccinated. And, um, you know, you can't come to school and you can't go to the theater and we're not going to visit you anymore. 
like the the borderline between opinion and real life gets pretty blurry. Uh, I mean, suppose we lived in Rwanda in 1992, and I'm a Tutsi and you're a Hutu. And you're like, well, you know, it's nothing personal, but I'm going to have to come and hack you to death with a machete because my opinion is that you are like a cockroach. And, but we're still friends. Like, and that's uh, obviously a lot more extreme than what happened in COVID. But one of my <clears throat> main arguments the whole time is that it's on a continuum because it becomes about who belongs, who doesn't belong. Who is the who are the acceptable people? Who are the unacceptable people? And when that kind of um, hysteria rises, the pressure on people to conform to it is intense. This is one of the. So I read. I, I know the article you're referring to about forgiveness. It was the one in the Atlantic by Emily Oster, saying that you know we should have amnesty. Oh, horrible article, horrible article. I have so much to say about it, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I have a lot to say about it too. Uh, <laughs> and my main point is I would love for there to be amnesty. I have no desire to punish people if I could be sure that it isn't going to happen again. But if we just pretend, we have to say, oh, sorry, you know, uh, we didn't know better. Um, Actually, like, that's the question. Why didn't you know better? Like, I believe that mostly that Emily Oster and a lot of my friends and relatives and people I love and people I know and just ordinary, decent people, I believe that they didn't know better. But why didn't they know better? That's because of the criminality and corruption in the system that essentially lied to everybody for three years. So if we don't get to the root of why we didn't know better. And a lot of us, you and I did know better. I mean, I spoke out against the whole nonsense, you know, in April, 2020. But but if we don't ask, why didn't we know better? Then it's going to happen again, or some other version of it is going to happen again. So I'm, I'm writing an essay right now on this. And my modest proposal is that amnesty comes with a price. And the price of amnesty is total disclosure, total transparency. And anybody are like, yeah, let's offer amnesty. If, if Anthony Fauci, for example, confesses to everything, including like the experimental use of throwaway children to test toxic drugs that uh, contribute to the profits of pharmaceutical companies, like the worst of the worst, you saw the Kennedy movie, right? like all that stuff. If he reveals all, like how exactly, because we don't know a lot of it. You know, we don't know, for example, if the virus was a um, uh, was deliberately leaked or accidentally leaked out of a lab. We don't know. I mean, I think we, we're all pretty sure now that it was genetically engineered. Um, was it an actual bioweapon or did it merely come from the same kind of research that develops bioweapons. We don't know that either. We don't know exactly how the um, fraudulent studies, like what were the exact channels that got those fraudulent studies published that uh, destroyed iv ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Like, like there's a lot of uh, workings of the dark underbelly of the establishment that we don't know. So my, my proposal is 
I am happy to forgive, but not if forgiving and forgetting preserves the system and the people in power that perpetrated this whole thing to begin with. But but there, so there is something in that article that I think is is a truth, which is that that um, the our consciousness is moving beyond that of punishment. We serve something higher, and that higher thing is healing. Like if if I, if you gave me a choice, if you said Charles, here's your choice: a you can have all of the criminals punished, and that's going to feel really good, and you'll be vindicated. But the same patterns are going to remain in society. Or choice B, everybody gets completely off scot-free. They're never punished, but nothing like this ever happens again to our children, grandchildren, and future generations. I would pick B, even if I'm never vindicated. So there's a truth there that I want to hold on to. But you know, simply just pretending the whole thing never happened and never rooting out the, the bad actors and the bad systems and the bad ideologies, that's ridiculous. We're not gonna, we're not gonna accept that. Well, amen to that. And now I want to re respond to point by point because you said so many things that, that I, I also have thoughts about. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I wrote this big essay about forgiveness before this Atlantic article came out. And personally, I distinguish between the people who genuinely for whatever reason didn't know better and somebody who is like Fauci because I see some planning and scamming on his part going back and oh, yeah. AIDS and all that yeah. so I think uh, in an ideal world would he confess well I, I, I not in this lifetime I don't think I mean it's just, I think that that's just not going to happen as much as that would be very sweet like but what if he don't get punished if he doesn't confess because everybody else is confessing and they're going to reveal his crimes anyway. So he better hurry up and do it. Like it creates um, a, a mutually reinforcing revelation. Well, I think that everybody confessing again, like a part of it is the ideal world that would be wonderful. But I think given the corruption, corruption and well, in fact, going back to the conspiracy, some conspiracy may be a significant element of conspiracy to what's happening. It's just, I do not, I think that even if he confessed, he would still have to be jailed, I think. I don't like the idea of capital punishment. I'm just against it. I don't think it's our job to, to you know, to do that human, as, as human beings. But I think that justice is important. I don't feel any hatred towards well, I mean, like, towards anybody, really, including him, I despise him, I feel a lot of contempt. I, I feel a lot of disapproval, but I think that, again, in a, in a completely ideal scenario, saying he confessed and he reformed and he's spiritually a new person, I, I don't think it's... Well, there, there, but see, there's a natural punishment that happens. If he confessed to the crimes that I think he's actually committed, these are heinous crimes. Like... Huge numbers of innocent children, babies, died because of him. And so the punishment is humiliation. If he confessed to all that, I mean, how are people like, I mean, it is it is an incredible amount of shame. Putting them in jail is almost like superfluous once, once, he, once the truth has come out. 
well okay so and we're only addressing one of the points that you said uh, that you that you talked about so there's so much more to this topic but i think that <clears throat> if our society keeps jailing criminals as a part of the system then he's definitely a very good candidate then if our society transforms magically into an entirely different form where it's all works differently completely then then we'll talk about it then i think right now and i don't see how in the near future our society will go there so i i actually i, I know what you're saying yeah, it's I, not I, it's not some ideal it's not some faraway ideal this already happens in the criminal justice system when if, if somebody turns state evidence and and like we already want this we want people to reveal what's actually happening and you know then maybe a bigger fish gets ultimately gets punished but really what's going on is we're saying okay if you if you repent if you join our side if you help us uncover the truth then we won't punish you or we'll give you a lesser punishment this is already there's already um a template for this in the legal system and in our personal relations also if if we're you know in a fight with somebody if somebody has wronged us and and done us harm what what we want at least for me like what i want is for them is to know that i'm not crazy yes this did happen yes you did this and we both understand that now and then when that happens then forgiveness comes naturally to me whereas if somebody never even sees what they have done then i'm going to like i'm not going to be able to forgive them because something hasn't happened yet that is supposed to happen i hear you and i think we're on the same page there i am i actually naturally i mean like i'm not inclined towards hatred and i usually prefer what is called closure i guess it's an american word mm -hmm. for what i'm talking about yeah. i i by far prefer that and then i actually genuinely kind of don't remember the harms i mean that's a natural cycle i i feel the same way yeah. but here i think that we are not in the current state of society and just the emotional habits collectively and individually i don't think what my argument here is not philosophical or in principle my argument here is that i don't see it happening with fauci being a, a character in this story i just don't think that's likely but i want to address actually some of the bigger points and then go to emily because i'm also writing an essay about mm -hmm. it <laughs> so uh the natural punishment of shaming or like, the word punishment doesn't really belong here but the natural process and the suffering that a person experiences for when the person realizes what kind of crap he or she has done i think that's the inbuilt mechanism that the universe has for balancing things and for instance a story i really like the work of maladoma soma who was a you know an elder dagara elder who passed away recently and for example he cites uh he talks about a story where a um, villager like one of the people in their village who who was raised with everybody else friends with people just normal human being one day he decided to do something really sacrilegious like steal something that was very important to everybody in the village and so once he did that he broke a very important so he went against the very very foundational things that they all maintained and so what happened to him spiritually after that he lost his mind I mean, like he went literally crazy and then nobody really interacted with him anymore 
and nobody like he was he was just roaming around being a crazy man thinking that everybody else was crazy and they just stopped so the the depth of what he did was so awful that they just they, they just didn't bother to like heal him or save him or help him so at least as, as of the point of when he was talking to, talking about it or writing about it and that makes sense and so but i mean like the universe took care of balancing it to some degree at least within one lifetime where what he did was so against the well-being and the interest and the spiritual uh, laws of the community that he became just like disgusting and they just didn't want to bother with him anymore and then another story is from the african culture where a woman and that is the the uh sort of the pattern for proper forgiveness where a woman w- went to the market and uh so she wanted to trade and then her child farted like a little girl farted and then the woman was so oh no i'm sorry i'm misspoken misspeaking so the woman farted and so she was so embarrassed that she started blaming the child and then and then she i guess she was she kept farting and then she kept blaming the child because she was embarrassed and then the people around were like no it cannot be like it was too big like it cannot be the child and then she said no 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 and then she started slapping the child and uh reprimanding the child and then the child started crying but the woman just wouldn't like wouldn't let go because because of her embarrassment so they went home and then the girl got really sick uh and then the woman got scared and then she went to the wise man in her in her in her village and they told her that she did well she wronged the child that was wrong and in order for the child to get better she would have to go back and confess and she would have to promise and and make the sincere decision to never do that again so she went to the market and she confessed and she said oh it was not the child it was it was me who did it and then after that the girl got better and then you know life became good and and then of course she made an internal decision based on the whole transformation of emotions that she went through that that was not the right thing to do and she was not going to do that again and that like to me is a wonderful i mean the only really working pattern for the full closure where yes people do make mistakes and in in different positions from it can be confusion or even greed i mean any, any emotions but unless people go through the entire motion of oh my god this is i mean unless they feel what they did and then that compels them to actually fix it and and apologize and become honest then there's i mean like then the cycle is complete if that doesn't happen then we get into the place where like for example in the current situation with all the mandates right i'm in new york i feel i feel strongly about it because i've been discriminated against and like treated badly and so do I, I do i forgive them fully in the sense of the closure no i despise that behavior and like specifically people who chose to even be extra aggressive about it who gloated in mm-hmm. like expressing their power that i'm not going to let you in i i i despise it do i want to spend the rest of my life feeling traumatized by it hell no i just ignore i i separate them from out of my life and 
I leave it up to the universe to, to fix it. And there's a difference between full closure forgiveness, that is just complete healing, it heals forever, and then sort of like, okay, so they are not there yet, they're not ready yet, maybe in their lifetime, in this lifetime, maybe they will figure it out, and then we'll talk about it. Maybe not, but in the meanwhile, I'm not, I'm just not going to, you know, kill myself just thinking about it and then a layer from there if you think why are they this way and then maybe i don't know maybe they were hopelessly broken as a child maybe their mom was a cold person maybe i mean like who knows so they have a story in which they're a victim in that sense now am i their psychologist is it my job to go and like spend my energy trying to figure that out we all have only that much energy, even if it's a lot. So we, we really cannot go after every confused person and try to fix them, right? So most of them are going to do it how they, they do it. But I usually after a little bit of or like some like, oh, my God, I feel so much contempt. And then I let them be and I'm like, okay, so they have been victimized by something else. They had maybe multi-generational story that led them to be where they are. And... I wish them well as long as they don't mess with me. Right. You're not going to trust them. There's going to be always something right. between you. Um, and I feel the same way. You know, I like, and I guess forgiveness can mean a lot of things, but I can also say that I haven't forgiven the people who never have owned up or recognized what the harm that they have done. You know, like, like, I mean, I've, I don't live in New York. Things were pretty bad here too, though. Um, you know, we had, ski passes, theater tickets, like all kinds of stuff that we weren't allowed into the, you know, into the venue and didn't, weren't getting a refund. Even my wife lost her license. She's an oh, acupuncturist. No. Yeah. She lost like the state of Rhode Island required vaccination to keep your license as an acupuncturist. So she lost her license. Uh, oh. We had to take our child out of school because we weren't willing to put him in mask world every day. Um, you know, we, um, I mean, I lost my, my, you know, my publisher denounced me. Yeah. Millions of people <laughs> with yep. direct email, like blasting out to everybody that I was an anti-Semite and purveyor yeah, uh, of information. You know, I mean, it's not like it's not like I was untouched by it and therefore I'm willing to forgive. Um it's and I'm not just being a pushover here. What I'm what I'm saying, and and okay, so to talk about Fauci. I also think it's very unlikely that he would come clean on everything, but not everybody has to come clean on everything. Maybe some of his associates will take the opportunity if there's some kind of amnesty. And if only a few of them come clean, then, you know, Fauci's going to um, be prosecuted and put in prison. So, so, See, and then there's also like this very blurry boundary between <clears throat> who is actually a criminal and a malicious evildoer and who kind of went along with it, but maybe on some level, like I think they, they feel guilty on some level. And I think Emily Oster is an example of that, because if you look at her, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at her tweets from the COVID era, they're, they're, they're kind of like... Um, it's like she has misgivings, but she doesn't dare say them directly. 
So she says, well, of course, I'm not an anti-vaxxer or anything, but don't you think maybe the mandates are going a little too far? Of course, I'm not. Of course, I believe in social distancing. But, you know, maybe like she's she's trying to stay um, in the in-group by affirming its pieties um, while like like uh, obliquely giving, um, you know, expressing her what she actually thinks, which is like she has deep misgivings about it. And and so this, you know, you can't like from her conscious experience, oh, we didn't know, like she didn't know. But it's not that simple. Like what parts of ourselves deny what we actually think, deny our, our truth in order to fit in, in order to not lose our job. You know, like people will will believe what is convenient to believe and convince themselves of it, even if on the deepest level, they don't believe it. And so this is a lot more complicated than, you know, is she a criminal or not? And I think that that this kind of unconscious um, uh, self-persuasion and, and self-justification goes on in the minds even of the people who are doing like pretty blatantly criminal things. Like if you talk about the depopulation agenda um, and you go into those think tanks, you know, in those rarefied intellectual circles and they talk about the earth's carrying capacity and the resources used per person and the ecological damage and the future of humanity. And we have to reduce the population. Here are the numbers, you know, by this much. And well, we're not going to kill everybody, but what if we, what if we simply sterilize them? Um, uh, and and well, you know, people wouldn't accept that, but so we have to do it by stealth. Um, and that's actually the humanitarian thing to do. And we're doing good for the world. Here's the numbers that prove it. And well, of course, I'm not going to do that to my children. Um, but you know, we're much we're the educated. You know, we're the the good people. Um, and we're responsible and, and like they have a whole, a whole apparatus of, of self-justification that fits into a larger ideology. This is the ideology of progress that has been with us for hundreds of years that says that the advancement of the human species equates to the, um, to dominion over nature, to exerting our lordship and dominance over the material world over the genetics, over the body, uh, that progress means that we exert technological control over more and more areas of life, social life, political life, genetic life, um, biological life, the earth, geoengineering, um, the internet of things. We're going to put everything into a big data set. That's what progress is because then we'll be able to administer everything rationally. So if you're steeped in this ideology of progress, then you will, and this is why so-called progressives tend to be very, very pro the science, because that is what progress is. We're going to bring reason and science and data to more and more areas of life. So that is this, this gigantic immersive ideology that that pre that like prepares people like Bill Gates, people like Anthony Fauci, people like Klaus Schwab to it's it's like it, it prepares them to push this agenda, thinking all the while that they're doing something noble for the human race, without a single malicious thought. 
or only very deeply buried malicious thoughts. And this is what we're up against. And that, in my view, which means that simply getting rid of Gates, Fauci, Schwab, Soros, and all those, all those characters. I mean, yeah, I don't think that they should be in positions of trust and power. Um, but that is not going to solve the problem. It's not, and that's one, that's one, they are 1% of the problem. Yeah, definitely. Like, get rid of them. <laughs> okay, take them out of power. Yes, I agree with that. But our job is not done with that because we haven't addressed the ideology, the psychology, and the systems, including the economic system, that install such people into their positions to begin with. So much to say, and I still haven't gotten to Emily, but I'll, I'll take her on <laughs> yeah. because it kind of all build, uh, all fits in. So uh, I completely agree with you in a sense that there's this entire, and I don't like the word system, so I'll address that. So I have a different different word for that. But there's a whole thing, which I think is a collective emotional habit or spiritual habit that results in people like Gates and Klaus Schwab and so on. And for one, well, even serial killers, like classic serial killers who we all agree that they're bad people, even they may have some kind of inner logic to their behavior and to their theories that in their mind makes them good. Maybe they're trying to get some love that they think that they deserve and not get, I mean, like, I don't even want to go into their mind because I don't want to go there. But I think that most people have, maybe all people, but most have some kind of a justification that definitely doesn't make them a villain. So it's just like, for example, when we have, you know, cockroaches in our house, then we kill them. I mean, it's not like we feel like horrible people for killing the cockroaches because we feel very clearly that they don't belong on our turf. Therefore, we should handle them however we want so that they are no longer there. And if somebody is in a very high position of power, which is, I think, power of that level is, it's like a drug. They stop thinking like normal human beings. They stop relating. And from that position, if they somehow genuinely believe that they are the owners of this planet and they're entitled to it because clearly they have so much money and they have so much influence already, then they can very easily, and I think they do, view regular human beings as unworthy and replaceable their resource like their serfs so they can and they're entitled to in their mind do whatever they want and to preserve their resource and i i don't know if they i i don't i doubt that they love the earth because i i think it's very unlikely given all the destructive technologies that they invest in so i don't think it's about loving the earth obviously it's about preserving their resource and keeping the population wherever they wanted to keep. And th that is one part of it. But the whole, the whole domination system, again, I go back to the work of Stephen Newcomb, who, who spent decades working on the domination system as a definition. And I think that's a really beautiful way to describe and address the, the entire problem that we're having. Because if the mentality of progress, as you said very astutely, if that's about domination, then without tackling that principle, we are really walking in circles. And it could be 
you know, this demographic can be thrown under the bus today and then another tomorrow and then a third group the day after tomorrow or everybody, like all regular people now. But that is the principle. And unless we get rid of the principle from the inside, all of us, most of us, then the problem will be coming back. And I agree with you on that. So if we magically just disappeared Gates and Schwab and their masters upstairs and everybody who is doing that, I don't think that it would solve the problem. Although I, will, I wouldn't mind, to be honest, just like you. Yeah. I, would, I would be very, very, very happy if they just disappeared. They, they decided the moon is better and then they went to the moon and they stayed there. But the energy that is present, that whole principle where success equals stomping upon others as long as this energy is there then somebody else with a new name and a new address is going to come out of our masses and try to do the same thing so and it's a very existentially complicated thing so going back to systems like i usually argue with people who say you know like systems we should install systems and the argument might be semantic because I think that the system is a mechanical construct. So, and then the way I think about it is a collective habit, which is alive and vibrating. And so I think that everything, in fact, I think that everything that exists in the universe is alive. And even the laws of nature could be a habit of some bigger force that we don't even comprehend that maybe millions of years in existence, so we can't even compare anything to anything. So, and changing habits is, I think, the main thing that can help us. And let, let me explain, because it is the least glamorous thing on earth, like changing your own bad habits, for example. And I think that the solutions to making the world better are right in front of our nose. I mean, like they're there, they're always there. They've been always there throughout history. It's courage, it's honesty, it's truth, it's humility. It's essentially connecting to, to, to the spiritual world in a way that is not talk, talking points, in a way that is from the heart and, and praying for guidance and really trying to be your best self. So that is the solution to essentially everything and then patience of course because the solutions don't come right away the moment you decided to do all that so you have to invest a lot of work your entire life whatever so but if people started doing that then the world would change dramatically and then the energy that fe feeds the gates and the domination it will just exhaust itself they would have no energy to eat and then the, the events would follow i mean i don't know how but the events would follow but because the habits are very ingrained in us and we are dealing with centuries of bad collective habits. So we think, oh, it's human nature. And, and human nature has everything. It has the good, the bad, everything in between. And it's a matter of choice. We can choose to just dominate and put it over everything. And we can choose to be humble before the spirits. And then from there, try to do things and uh, make choices. But even if in a small, like on a small, uh, low level, in an argument, people want to win, like virus or no virus, you know, desmet or not, no desmet. The if if the principle is domination, if the principle is not getting at truth, 
and at the, respecting the other person if the person disagrees. If the principle is no, I have to convert them immediately to my point of view because I know it's correct. And if they don't get converted, then we're all going to die. I mean, that is fear-based emotion that leads to the need to dominate. And it's all, it's not black and white, it's nuanced. There are situations where you really need to protect yourself and that's the most critical task, absolutely. But in general, especially when it comes to just debates, if everybody just wants to be right, then there's no hope. Like, which is why I have a bit of a grudge when people like fight the great reset by yelling at the people who disagree with them. Because I think the whole principle of yelling to dis at people who disagree, and I mean yelling as in not giving them, not respecting their spirit, not just like passionate argument, which can happen, but just genuinely writing them off and disrespecting their spirit, that is exactly the energy that gives birth to Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and their masters. And so you cannot fight the great reset by being a tyrant in your own life. I mean, that's, that's my big philosophy. And that's, you know, that, that's tough. But anyway, and then I'll get to Emily. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot I can say. Um, is there anything you'd, you'd especially like me to comment on? Oh, well, anything, because we are in the conversation about the meaning of life, seemingly. So Yeah, it's gone pretty esoteric, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll take up about habits, um, habitual ways of thinking, ways of seeing. In uh, Naomi Wolf's book, she, she describes a scene in, you know, some very, very elite uh, dinner party or something, that she's at, I don't know if it's, if it's in Nantucket or some fancy place. And she's there with these, uh, you know, Wall Street people and high finance people. And this is around the time of Syriza in Greece, when they, uh, you know, the, a, a radical populist movement took power or seemed to take power. And they were going to reject austerity and neoliberalism. And the people in the room were shaking their heads and clucking and, and, you know, talking about how important it was to prevent that from happening. Um, and there, it was, they were very arrogant, but they weren't like full of any kind of malign intent or hate. They were just like, yeah, those people in Greece, they don't know what's good for them because you know, here's what will happen to the economy and here's the way that things work and here are the financial numbers. And, and like when you're in that world of numbers, it distances you from actual human beings. And that's this, this like abstraction, this separation from the world. Um, that's what allows, it, it's dehumanization that allows the atrocities to happen. When somebody becomes a, just a number, uh, just a case, just a consumer, um, just a symbol of something, and a, of an, a political idea, for example, when somebody becomes an enemy, when somebody becomes a terrorist, when somebody becomes a dehumanized racial or ethnic subclass, then you can do anything you want to them. When somebody is a, you know, to take like the uh, example in, in, um, communist revolutionary societies, if somebody can be classed as a bourgeoisie, 
um, or as a capitalist, then they lose their humanity. So this is this distancing from the world and desacralization and dehumanizing the world through number and label is one of the the um, the, the habits, the meta habits, the meta patterns that lead to like just to be very practical here um, lead to a lot of the COVID policies where you're 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 trying to be scientific. Scientific means doing it by the numbers. And which numbers do you choose? Well, it's the ones that are easiest to measure. Epidemiological numbers, cases, hospitalizations, deaths. So if you then decide that you're going to form policy to minimize those numbers, then you ignore everything that does not fit into those numbers. You ignore the things you can't measure. You ignore the things you choose not to measure the things that don't seem important in your worldview that you can't even see. Like in early in the pandemic, I wrote an article called Numb. Um, it was about this, this um, teenage girl. Um, she made a little film on YouTube. It was very beautiful. Uh, about this teenage girl and, and, and her film was just like the pictures of her prom and of her her groups and her friends, and she's just in this room, in her bedroom, hour after hour, day after day, week after week. And she titled her her um, her film "Numb." That impact wasn't measured because you can't even really measure it. You have to be in touch with humanity, and it is in large part the the, the separation of the elites from actual human connection. Like they don't, they don't spend time in, in you know, the slums in, in Athens, you know, they don't spend time in, in the uh, townships in Johannesburg, you know, um, and if they did, they would know that the COVID policies did way more harm than good, but they're living in a world of abstractions. And so I guess I just wanted to, um, you know, complicate the issue <laughs> by by offering other motivations besides evil or other explanations besides evil that don't actually exclude evil. Like I also think that, for example, human trafficking networks penetrate very, very high and and extensively in um, elite circles. Okay, like. I am aware of all of this stuff. I've been, you know, exploring these rabbit holes for 20 years. So I'm not naive about the, the horrific things that go on in the shadows. I really want this to stop. And that, it's not that I'm wanting to forgive and let people off the hook and, and just not see the horror. It's not that I'm naive. It's that I am practical. First, let me say that I learned actually relatively recently that my family was harmed by the whole Bolshevik Soviet system. I had no idea until I was an adult. And so I'm pissed off. I'm pissed off about it because that's not right. And I maybe my whole raging against the great reset 
was coming it's it's my blood calling me because this this direction is not right and uh, and i do have feelings about it they're not feelings of revenge but they are feelings that that is not it's just not right to do that to human beings it's not just and that should not be done and that goes for all, obviously all human beings and all sorts of injustices I'm not singling out one, but this one is very close to my heart. So the direction that the society is going right now, which whatever is me attached to, it doesn't matter. It's totalitarian and I'm very much against it. And I just wanted to put it on yeah, record. Absolutely. I'm extremely, extremely against it and I'm indignant. So going back, you know, I want to talk about Emily first yeah. even you went into very dark waters and yeah. i mean like I, I i i'm with you it's it's awful it's it's darkness and i and i and i i'm against that obviously but emily so mm -hmm. i started writing an essay i read her article and i'm like oh my god oh my god oh my god i have to say something and but then i want to be fair also because just go and actually i even wrote to her saying do you want to come on my podcast and i mean like i disagree with you but we can have a conversation i i'm not holding my breath but i'm sincerely like i'm willing to and do it humanly like normally but so as i was writing the article and my article the first draft is like oh my god oh my god and then and then i started like i started looking into her work and just just trying to understand where she comes from because i want to be fair and uh, Right now, I I actually feel bad for her. It, while I also am willing to range about the arrogance of all this and the harm that arrogance like like that causes to many people, but so she is like an economist, right? And she teaches at Brown University, and she's also a parenting expert. And I started looking into her parenting expertise. And her tagline is that she's a database parenting expert. And one of the things that I noticed from that article where she talks about let's give amnesty, she talks, she, she mentioned, and it's a very short article. It's not even like, it's not a long article, but she mentions an episode where they were all hiking, all masked up because they didn't know, even though the information was there. But anyway, so, uh, and then a child, some child approached them and her son like yelled social distancing so oh, i know i saw woman, i read that too i read yeah, that too this woman uh, sincerely from love in her in her understanding of love traumatized her own kid which definitely she didn't mean to do anything evil so she is messed up sufficiently why why i feel bad to trump to pass it on to her own children and so that is she i would not i would not let any kid close to this regardless i can have many conversations with her but she's traumatized herself and she would probably hate to hear that because she'd be like no 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 like you're not anti-vaccine i'm not going to hear you like to, to listen to you right and that would be her defense but so her parenting before covid so she was talking about things like she was given an interview I don't remember where. And the interviewer asked her something about breastfeeding. And like, is it really good or better or doesn't matter? And she says, well, there's a, this evidence where the kids who are breastfed, they, you know, they do have high IQ, IQs and then they probably get less diseases. 
but I think it's probably correlation. So I'm not sure, so sure about it. And therefore, so it's probably just depends on the mom. So I think it's fine. I think like you can just not really focus on breastfeeding. Oh, she didn't say that exact phrase, but essentially said, yes, there's data, but I think it's, it's correlation and it probably doesn't really mean much. And so then the woman, uh, the interviewer, asked her so then what about the maternal leave maternity leave so is it really that important then if breastfeeding is not that significant and then emily responded no 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 i looked into the data and the data says that some maternity leave is actually important and i'm thinking poor woman and poor children of hers because if she needed to go to the data to figure out if the mom needs to be around her kids, then God help us all. I mean, yeah. it's just she's that's what I'm talking that. about, Tessa. That's what I'm talking about. Like this, this getting lost in a world of numbers, you know, and separated from actual hum, human and biological ways of knowing things. Well, it, exactly. And then she was talking about how she gives her kids an allowance. Like it was also, I think, pre-COVID. Like she gives her kids an allowance of like a couple of dollars a week so that to train them, to make them understand that things don't come for free. And I was thinking, I mean, like, I'm, like it's great that she, she's in the position to create artificial scarcity so that her kids understand. I mean, I, I don't really like the whole concept. I think, well, I come from the Soviet Union where it was different. But many people in this world actually don't have to create this scarcity. The kids ask them for something. They say, no, you can't have it because I don't have the money. I mean, right. like, that's how a lot of people live. She had to introduce this artificial scarcity where a kid would ask for something. She said, well, you can use your allowance or else you don't have it. Like, you, you can't have it. But then I have a whole other like a big thing about that because I grew up in the Soviet Union where paying your kids for doing things, for example, I mean, that's something that is completely unhuman. Like you just in the right. family, you help each other and that's how you do and you help parents. Yeah. So when she had to introduce that artificial monetary, again, dry, it's cold, it's cold. I mean, but and it's, you know, I'm sure that if we, you know, looked into her, parenting advice there are probably some things that are really good and some things that are kind of disturbing and but but you're i think the point that you were you were getting to with the um uh that that little story about you know her child on the trail social distancing i think you were going somewhere really interesting with that i'd like to to bring mm -hmm. you back to that yeah yeah go ahead no i thought i was hoping i wanted no, to no, just no, no, no i mean like i mean like it's just that the the, the i she is essentially a child of multi-generational trauma the human warmth was taken out of it and probably not globally i'm sure she has like i've never met her i'm sure she has done good things and she's not an evil human being per se. she's an arrogant human being she's in her echo chamber and she doesn't i mean like that's the whole thing also i actually want to go to data in, instead of going back to the to the little child right. so she's a data-based parenting expert so she looks into data the data about masks and i'm sorry to say like even this uh covid shots it was there like how come i read the clinical trials what they were just released it was late 2020 and i thought oh my god this is a joke like at that point yeah. i mean and, and she the data expert didn't see that but why why because she only counted the data approved by her echo chamber any right. data that was contradicted by her echo chamber is not real data and this is how 
this dialogue goes, right. well, if that were real, then somebody would be talking about it. Well, right. listen, this person is talking about it. Oh, no, this person does not count because this person thinks this. That's right. the circle. It comes down, right. This is the question that, that needs to be asked is, how is the data produced? What biases and interests influence the way that data is produced? What, what is the process by which data is accepted as valid? And with people like, you know, people who are in academia, who have a, a big investment in the soundness of the system that gives them status, they pretty much uncritically trust the legitimacy of what is affirmed to be the data. They don't ask, um, you know, what biases are encoded in the data. And, and like, basically it's like it's circular reasoning. You say, well, um, I, I trust the data that says the vaccines are safe. And you say, well, what about this data that says they aren't safe? Well, that data um, is uh, illegitimate because it isn't accepted by the scientific community, you know, by the, by the like, basically it, it's invalid because it doesn't fit into the, the um, talking points, the, the paradigm um, that I'm part of. So, yeah, it's like, and as soon as some expert who had been part of the club of the cool kids, like Peter McCulloch, as soon as they, they deviate from orthodoxy, then they become no longer a valid source of data. So it really comes down to how much faith and trust do you have in, you don't like the word, the system, but in the in, machine, in the in, machine, yeah. in the institutions, we'll say that right. in the institutions of knowledge production, which are um, uh, journalism and science and academia. That's 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 the institutions of knowledge production. And if they're you, just a little bit corrupt. If you believe that they are sound, if you believe that they are not corrupt, then um, you're going to believe what what you know you're going to believe what you're told you're going to believe that that uh, you're going to believe what what emily Oster, esther believes uh, emily oster believes it really comes down and then i ask myself this is what what i went through early on in covid i'm like okay i don't believe any of this stuff i don't believe that masks are helping us i don't believe that standing in these x's in the supermarket is going to keep anybody from getting sick you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was, You're a rebel, Charles. <laughs> who like marooned me on planet crazy here? You know, like I don't believe all this. And you could show me the data, and then I could look at other data, like the kind you're talking about, that says that 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 this is useless. And someone else can show me another set of data. And why do I believe one set rather than the other set? It's because of an anti-authoritarian. Uh, rebellious streak that basically, I mean, I've, I have kind of rejected the legitimacy of civilization itself for a very long time. This is my entire career, basically. Um, and where does that come from? Like, why do I just naturally tend to trust the dissident instead of, you know, the head of the NIH or the head of the CDC? Um, 
Yeah, and it's, it's like ultimately it comes down to personal experiences. That that that, I mean, even like going back to, you know, I, I lived in Taiwan for um, my entire twenties, you know, for nine years of my life, and like had direct firsthand experiences that science says are impossible. And I've had direct experiences um, of of indigenous people and poverty in the world that blatantly contradict the ideology of uh, neoliberalism and development uh, and and the the mythology that says that that human well-being is progressing because of uh, reason, science, markets, um, and and technology. Like I have these direct experiences that that if if I did not have those, then I might buy into the um, legitimacy and basic goodness of the trajectory of civilization, and I might have you know a high position in the establishment somewhere. And I might be like, oh yeah, Peter McCulloch, he went crazy. Robert Malone, he's he's you know uh, a charlatan, whatever. I could like dismiss all these people, and I'd be living in my bubble. And the whole thing isn't because I'm stupid; it's because I had a different set of experiences. And so that's to me the question is: if we're going to change all this, Tessa, what experiences can we deliver to people that are this anomaly that are this this data point that won't go away and that doesn't fit. And that's kind of happening naturally to people. Like a lot of people, I mean, they got vaccine injured. And before that happened, there was nothing you could have said that would have changed their mind about anything. But now here's like, a, <laughs> I mean, some people who get vaccine injured still don't change their minds. Like that's how strong the conditioning is. But usually it takes something like that. To, for people to, to release attachment to their belief system. I don't have an answer for you here. I'm just like uh, presenting the enormity of the situation that we face. Well, I think very uh, similarly about the approach to solutions. I think, well, my entire point that I constantly write about in different ways is that ideas are a consequence, consequence of a sensory state. So ideas is something that we, you know, we flatter ourselves of being smart and this is our belief, but the foundation is the sensory state. And when you were talking about your own set of experiences that led you to trust the dissidents and maybe not trust the head of the NIH, it seems like a logical choice also, but anyway, so uh, I, like my own, uh, well, I went through many, many experiences, but I guess the point at which I was tossed out of the system at the time for the time being was when my abusive ex set me up and I was arrested and I spent about a month in jail. And even though I already was in an abusive marriage and that was horrible, like genuinely, truly, completely insane, crazy, batshit, horrible. But then from there, when that happened, the entire thing of my delusions about me being like respectable citizen with mm -hmm. rights, all that just went into the toilet because they were treating me like I had no rights whatsoever. They did whatever they wanted. There was like some physical violence. Some, I mean, I was just like, 
the entire ego construct was I mean, it had no ground to stand on, really. So and it was extremely, it was very, very painful, very shocking, very traumatic. And it took me many years to really get over that. Mm -hmm. But then when the healing complete, which again, took a very long time, then it gives you an entirely different perspective. So when somebody says, oh, like, oh, democracy, and you think, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's something to that because say the pre 9-11 america was a much freer place than say the soviet union it is absolutely true and i am here so i mean it's like it speaks yes. for itself but at the same time well let's not pretend that anybody loves us here either so and once you understand that nobody on top actually cares about you as a human being then you lose your trust in the sense that, I mean, you still operate. I mean, like, it's not like it's necessary. Well, now maybe it is, but at least prior to that, we could live, go about our lives and not really worry too much about, you know, highly conspiratorial things. Now they're in our faces. But that was my experience that made 2020 easy for me in a sense that like, oh, I recognize the messaging from an abusive person. I recognize mm -hmm. the corruption, corruption, the system. When somebody tells me, when the television, well, I don't own a television, but computer tells me, like, don't trust your instincts. Don't, if you have an opinion that deviates from mine, you're a bad person. Forget about it and do what I say. Wait, that, that's what my abusive ex-husband was telling me, word for word. Yep. Hold on a second. Hold on. What's going on here? So that entire horrible experience absolutely horrible many years of healing proved itself useful when that other abuse started happening and and that was not the only one i mean it's not like i became very wise after that like it took many 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 things to happen so but then for the people who have been in a way sheltered like that produces a result they're very blessed and lucky to be sheltered i mean they it's wonderful i I'm very happy for the fact that they had the wonderful sheltered life. It is beautiful. But then the price that has to be paid for that is that they didn't go through the experiences that would prepare them to be suspicious about the head of the NIH in the same way maybe that you and I are suspicious, not just some kind of theoretical like, yeah, sure, they're corrupt, like everybody's corrupt. Not like that. But like this person can be so corrupt that they can endanger my life. I mean, that yeah. feeling cannot be abstract. And then I think, like, what indigenous cultures had, uh, at least, you know, the, the ones that I'm somewhat familiar with, is that they had, oh, well, I'm not going to use the word system. They had practices in place that helped people acquire the sensory, the sensory wisdom, the sensory state that would make them, like, alert and spiritually present, and that would give the necessary sensory foundation to make them, you know, good warriors in a sense that that is required from all of us in, in many ways. And so, and they had a practice in place intelligently, intelligently, wisely to have the kids or the, the teenagers go through that so that they're proper, mature adults. In our society, life takes care of it kind of throughout the life. It's very like stretched out, which is why it takes experiences like vaccine injury to wake up to things. But I don't think we can really solve. 
things without people realigning their senses. And that's, I mean, that's a very philosophical existential task. I think life is going to eventually, maybe in the thousand years, two thousand years, balance things out where we would go back to some of the wise ways, at least that people did for millions of years. But who am I? I mean, like, I have no idea how it's going to work. So it's like, oh, one easy, easy solution and three steps. I mean, like, it doesn't work this way. So it's all very mysterious. Hmm. Yeah. Um, again, there's a lot I could say, but I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that we that we want to, uh, you know, make sure that we talk about. What do we feel? Um, I think that the, yeah, so yes, normally people have to have an experience like an abusive husband, like being sent unjustly to jail, um, like the medical system failing them, um, like, like something that breaks the spell, breaks the spell of normality that says that what is normal is good, it's right, it's sound, it's legitimate, and um, I can trust normal, I can trust its authorities, I can trust the soundness of the whole society that I'm in. Something has to break that spell. And normally what happens is um, the first um, disruption in the fabric of normality it doesn't necessarily change somebody completely. They might say, well, okay, that's one bad institution, but everything else is okay. Uh, you know, the music industry, that's corrupt, but everything else is okay. Or at least academia, that's still sound, even if, you know, uh, the business world is corrupt or politics is corrupt, but at least there's the safe, the safe sanctuary of science that is still pure and integrous. Uh, and then over time, the radicalization begins to expand as you realize that every institution is woven into all the other institutions and that the whole thing is, I could say corrupt, but maybe just very narrow, um, that the reality that it contains is a very tiny part of what is actually real. And that, um, that that the human condition could be a lot better outside of these boundaries of our current ideologies and institutions. Like there is, and this is what we're all yearning for here. It's a breakthrough in human beingness. Because like you said before, I'm not sure exactly the words you used, but but none of our problems on earth are actually that hard to solve from a place of coherency, from a place of humility, from a place of transparency, like the ecological problems, you know, the social problems, political problems, they're all created by our, um, by ourselves, by our divisions, um, by our um, delusions. And, and so because of that, I, a more beautiful world is, is, is possible and not that far away. It's only our own um, 
beliefs and perceptions that are in the way of it. So, well, I guess um, one way that I understand myself and my work is to accelerate the process of creeping radicalization. And any, any breach in the fortress can be a way to open up into a bigger reality. So, I don't know, maybe I could circle it back. Well, one thing is, um, I think the indigenous have a lot to offer, um, alternative ways of navigating life and seeing the world. However, some um, precursor to the same phenomenon that we witnessed in, with COVID uh, existed in very ancient societies. Uh, the, the phenomenon that we call social hysteria, um, uh, sacrificial violence, scapegoating, um, the, the unifying violence of the majority against a dehumanized subclass in times of social tension. This goes back a very long way. And that's part of the reason why people are so instinctively terrified of um, being seen as a heretic, being seen as an anti-vaxxer, being seen as a, as a um, you know, whatever uh, deplorable category. People are, 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 are so careful to, to like, like um, um, what's her name? Ellen Osters? No, what's her name? Emily Oster. Yeah, like just always so careful to signal that I am on the right side. Because historically, if you were, um, uh, if you were put in the category of an infidel or a heretic or a witch, like you could be burned at the stake. You know, it was, it was, it was overridingly important to make sure that you were one of the cool kids. And that, that, that early precursor is what, like this, this deep part of human nature is how the fascistic elites are able to control us. Because whether or not um, there's a secret cabal giving Fauci his orders, nobody was giving Emily Oster orders. No one was, was commanding her to, you know, um, brainwash your child so that she, you know, shouts at other children, social distancing. Nobody gave my, my, my friends and relatives orders that they were to, you know, and, and, and that, that they were to um, exclude me from, from events. Like this was a mass phenomenon that was, that was um, exploited by totalitarians but it doesn't originate with them. I often give the example of, of my fourth grade class when I was uh, you know, in school, where, where there was this kid named Kent. And he was, one day somebody said, Kent's weird. One of the you know, mean kids in the class, you know? Kent's weird, you know? He just you know, put a piece of cheese in his, in his lunchbox, you know, without a wrapper or something like that, you know, 
And then other kids, Kent's weird, Kent's weird. And pretty soon, nobody would get near Kent because he had cooties, it was called also. Kent's got cooties. No one would get near him. No one would talk to him. No one would be friends with him. Now, I thought there was nothing wrong with Kent, but everybody else seemed to think that something was wrong with Kent. So I didn't speak up and I didn't get too close to him because if I did, then I would get cooties too. I would be the weird kid too. I was already on the verge of that. So I had to be careful. So I didn't say anything. Well, it could be that most of the class thought as I did, but they didn't say anything. Nobody said anything because nobody wanted to be the next target. Now, it wasn't like that the three or four class bullies had a secret meeting beforehand and gave orders that everybody was to shun Kent. It just kind of started happening. And when they saw it happening, then the class bullies used that to cement their power, used that, that you know, like they, they exploited it, but they didn't create it. it. It's very, very ancient. And so this is, this is one of the things we have to understand. Um, whether or not there's a big C, capital C conspiracy, we have to ask, how do they actually exercise their power? And one of the main ways, besides like the ideology and all that stuff, um, is through this pattern of, uh, I call it mob morality, um, of uh, dehumanization and belonging, of who's the cool kid and who's the weird kid. Like that's, that's what they leverage to control us. Whether or not they exist, this is a key area that we have to look at. Um, and that's what I want Emily Oster to look at. Like, why was she so available to start shaming people? Like, and if we're gonna forgive and we don't address that, like, why did everybody join in? Why did so many decent, normal people join in a, essentially a crime against humanity. You know, and I, I don't use that word, I don't use that term lightly, but I use it advisedly because I think that the total amount of death and suffering that happened because of COVID policy is on a scale, is on like a similar order of magnitude as some of the biggest atrocities in history. You know, if you look at like Steve Kearse's estimates, you know, given underreporting factors and all that kind of stuff, like probably millions of people died um, or were seriously injured from the vaccines. And even more than that died of hunger because of lockdowns. No one's talking about that. But, but hundreds of millions of people additional went hungry uh, because of COVID policies. Hundreds of millions. That includes millions of children starving, wasting, being stunted. Like no one's talking about that. I mean, that's something else that wasn't in the data when the epidemiologists made their policy recommendations. So this is on a scale similar to other historical atrocities. So that's why I say crimes against humanity. And, and whether or not it was coordinated and orchestrated purposely and deliberately to reduce the population or whatever, we still have to ask what makes ourselves, what makes, makes normal, decent people like Emily Oster available for manipulation and, and, you know, to, to carry out this horrific program.
Well, again, so much to say. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing your childhood story, because I think that is key. I think, well, we've all gone through something like that. And, well, I mean, like, I have another story where I choose to, as a small child, out of my own initiative, I chose to say like a petty lie, like petty, petty, petty. And then for a few seconds, I want, like in a game, like in a game with children. And then the feeling of just total absurdity. I mean, I remember that to this day and I was a small kid. And that taught me that uh, lying in order to win is not, I mean, it just feels like crap. So, and that was very useful because I learned that at a very early age. And I, I remember to this day, I mean, like, I just, uh, that, that, like, few seconds where, okay, here, here I won, like, in a game. And it just felt so weird, like, so completely out of, it was just not, not, not good. So, uh, completely another topic. I think, well, it's true that everything that exists today, I mean, it, it was in some kind of potential indigenous cultures because when I mean, people are people are people. That, that's people have been people for millions of years, and everything that exists today came out of at some point indigenous cultures in a way because simply because everybody lived like that everywhere on earth at some point. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding in a way because, well, without observing something, it's impossible to know how it is, right? But the moment where the proverbial Western civilization or, you know, whatever, it doesn't even have to be Western, but the, the modern version of human civilization came in contact with the older cultures, that was the moment of breakage. So that was, by definition, the, the unintruded state could not be observed because by... Yeah. So, I mean, so we, we don't really know. So the only way to really know is to be there before anybody external showed up. Or the leaders yeah. decided. But there's a lot of interesting anthropology around this. You know, I, I, I studied this, I, I researched this quite deeply when I was writing my series of essays um, about Rene Girard, you know, and mm -hmm. sacrificial violence. Like there's myths and legends and, and stories and oral traditions that point to uh, sacrificial violence, uh, you know, almost universally across the earth. I think, well, I mean, like, I have big mistrust of anthropology. And again, that's another debate, and that can be like five hours on its own. But I think that, like, for instance, we eat meat, right? I mean, I don't know if you eat meat. Yeah, I, I eat meat. Right? Yeah. So that requires violence, that requires a murder of an animal, right? So if, but we, in our heads, it, it's normal. It's just what we do. You know, the animals have to be killed and we eat them. So if, if in another culture, there's something we don't understand, then human beings tend to be like spooky about it. Like, oh, like what? So, so that's a very complex topic altogether. So, and I also think that different cultures were very different. And in our modern world, we tend to say, oh, the, the indigenous or the, the, and it's like saying all people are good or bad. Or, I mean, like it's, yeah, personalities are different. Very, very. So there were cultures that were matriarchal and patriarchal, and had very different ways of. Uh, well, essential to the same point. I think what was very common was the understanding and the respect for the spirit, but as far as personality traits, like whether sexual relations are liberal or very tabooed, 
they were very different in that regard. And so when us modern people go and say, oh, it was this way, it was that way, I think that without being in a sensory state that is the same as the culture, Mm-hmm. You can't really like nobody can like judge right. quote unquote because it's hard to whole, disentangle what we're projecting onto them. Right, right. What, yeah, that's true. Which is usually my my, my 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 like my grudge and my objection when when people say oh like they were this or that. Well, I mean we don't really know. Like what we know is that we, what we can perceive through our senses. And then, for example, when missionaries showed up and started making up all sorts of crazy ideas, like oh this is from the devil or whatnot. Right. I mean, it was such projection. I mean, they had no idea, yet they were scared. And so they slandered the probable p- pagans so badly that genocide resulted from it. And so I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, have, I feel very passionate about it because yes. I think that without developing sensory foundation that matches, that allows you to understand a complex culture, being an educated Western person, regardless of the skin color saying, oh, like, oh, I know, they didn't know, I know. But I mean, I know, I know you're not saying that. It's just, no, I'm I'm, not. I'm, yeah. I, I, what, what I'm coming from though is, is uh, I think that it's, a, it's kind of a toxic idea that, um, you know, that, and I hear it quite, quite a lot, you know, in the circles in which I travel that, you know, indigenous good, civilization bad. And, um, that that the problem is that humanity took a wrong turn in this thing called civilization that we should um, reject and and reverse uh, because actually um, civilization arose spontaneously in many places on Earth, pretty much almost everywhere where there were easily domesticable plants and animals. The same process started happening, which included. Uh, domestication, mass societies, um, uh, property, um, objectification of women, slavery, war, money, debt, uh, division of labor, uh, technology, uh, writing, like the same trajectory happened independently in China, in India, in Mesoamerica, in North America, um, in the Middle East, um, and maybe some other places too. So, um, but I don't think it's so simple as like this. This is one of the meta patterns that I talk about is the, or the habits, which is to apply the lens of good and bad to reality, to understand things. Who are the good guys in the story? Who are the bad guys in the story? There are many other storylines that we need to explore if we are to change the human condition right now. Otherwise, we're going to be in an endless war. I mean, look what's happening, you know, in Eastern Europe right now. I mean, in you know, like this. No, whole uh, my, 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 my people and the the, the brothers, those brothers of my people. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Oh, and sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's just like that. That is such a painful topic. Horrible. Yeah, well, we won't get into it now because we've been talking a long time. But um, let me just. I mean, like, do you want to hit my theory? I think what happened uh, with the transition from the proverbial indigenous to the civilization as we know it today in in its many variations i think that well again what's good and bad is entire topics i mean like i think what's good 
in my definition, how I use it, is good for well-being. Like it's not some kind of universal good, it's just conducive to well-being in the most harmonious way. And I think what happened is that, uh, at least on some level, is that everything is alive. So just like human cells comprise, uh, the cells in the human body comprise eventually at some point a human being as a whole, but cells probably have no idea. I mean, they live, they live their own lives, they do their own work, they essentially, their entire life, conscious life probably, but they do not necessarily imagine or like being a part of the whole human being. It's just a bigger, it's a different level. So I think there's such a thing as a human organism that is all of us and that that that's its own living being and with consciousness, with everything. We, we, we cannot imagine it. We cannot comprehend it because it's on another level. And I, I have a theory that at some point, for whatever reason, that living being that is all of us decided to go on this journey, to go on this maybe education like or maybe it's just the like a teenage phase where mm-hmm. you know kids are relatively pure not pure at all to your point they're not like kids like you had an experience as a kid i had experience as a kid kids are not necessarily pure in the absolute sense but they're kind of closer to where we come from they're more pure in that sense uh then when kids become teenagers it's like like it's like all the beating beating the chest and I'm right and adults are stupid and like it has to be my way and I know better than everybody else and then some at some point that also is processed in some way and hopefully if everything falls into places then the person becomes wiser more balanced so and at some point in life kind of retains the purity of a child but with an experience and all the life experiences and sorry it's my package so I have to open real quick I'm sorry uh, and so probably as a one human organism, we just made the choice and we're going to explore it and hope we end up in a good place. Yep. But I know that you don't have a lot of time. So is there anything that you want to, to say before we wrap up? Yeah, well, first, I, I, uh, I have quite a similar view about the human journey and the purpose of all of this, um, a, a journey into separation in order to come back um, to reunite at a higher level of consciousness, enriched by the entire experience of our separation. So anyway, I wrote a 600-page book about that 20 years ago, and I won't try to summarize it, but it has some of the same themes that you're that you're talking about, um, adolescence, coming of age. Um, and, um, and I guess, like, you know, it's kind of natural that we have a couple times in our conversation journeyed into like big philosophical ideas even though the the immediate topic was um conspiracy you know especially around covid issues uh, because it's 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 natural that it tends to go that place because we can understand the uh covid phenomenon as um like revealing a deep malady, a deep sickness in our civilization. The same sickness that has come up again and again historically uh, of what human beings are capable of doing to each other. And we want to get down to the bottom of that, of, of, of why. Why do we continue perpetrating horrors on each other? And so like the conspiracy narrative is one attempt to grapple with our 
with our bewilderment, our perplexity, and our indignation and our horror at at what human beings do to each other. Um, and so, you know, um, yeah. Cons so the conspiracy thinking is one way to to grapple with this question. And um, I, in our conversation, I've proposed some other ways to try to understand it, to try to make sense of this. And I would just, you know, encourage you and the listeners and myself um, to not be satisfied with simple explanations and familiar explanations, familiar ways of boxing up the problem, uh, but to stay a little bit in the mystery of it, because I think that what will be revealed in the end is going to surprise everybody. You know, can I just ask you because this whole the whole premise for the, uh, for the conversation was your take and my take on conspiracies. Mm -hmm. I think we are talking about semantic nuance. So you're not debating the fact that there are large conspiracies and always have been and possibly now we're dealing with one. You're not debating that. You're just saying that it is more complex. And while conspiracies might be very well at hand, at the same time, there are more things that are happening. So am I correct in my understanding? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, put uh, the conspiracy lens into a bigger, a bigger uh, reality. Uh, there's definitely conspiracies going on, okay? Like somebody is, I mean, there are, there, there are, there are like well-documented historical conspiracies that happen at a pretty high level. You know, for example, the Kennedy assassination. Um, for example, COINTELPRO. For example, um, the, the FBI's infiltration of uh, environmental groups and anti-globalist groups. Um, the um, assassination of Martin Luther King, like the poison pen letters that were written by the FBI to, to, to help, you know, create division in the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Um, I mean, I think that the London subway bombings in 9-11 uh, were the result of some kind of conspiracy. Um, I'm not going to try to lay a case right. for that right now, but they definitely happen. I don't think that, and and I'm aware of the. I mean, I've read all. I've read a lot of the literature. Um, you know that that um, asserts a millennia-old um, hidden controller network that is in civilization. Like I'm aware of that. That I'm not at all convinced of. Um, and so, yeah, I, I accept, and even in COVID, like, um, you know, much of the uh, lockstep conformity of the media can be explained by, you know, Matthias Desmet kind of explanations and, and the mob morality explanations and everybody going along with, uh, with ostracizing Kent in fourth grade, like that can explain a lot of it. And, you know, you look at the Fauci emails, like there was also manipulation happening, uh, like deliberate destruction of people's careers who spoke out. Like there were, there, you know, there's, there's also a structure uh, behind this. Um, and like the extent to, to which the, the, uh, say media and and big tech conformity the extent like some of it was they just kind of knew what to do to get along and what the cool kids did and then 
to some part, you know, it there's intelligence operatives in these companies, you know, and how much of it is one and how much of it is the other and how deliberately coordinated it was and how much it was pre-planned uh, and how much was opportunistic. I don't know the answers to all those things. I know conspiracies are part of the picture. Um, I don't accept them as the fundamental explanation for it all. Um, and I'm still in a, um, I'm still learning, you know? And like you said at the beginning, like I kind of sometimes tend to drift more to one side and then sometimes drift more to the other side. And so I just want to, uh, I'll say one more thing, another factor to consider. It's the way that reality tends to self-organize to fit a psychic state or a belief. And I'm talking about what Carl Jung called synchronicity. And the, the classic case, the example that he gave was, you know, he's seeing a patient who's um, had, I can't remember, it was dreams about Egypt, you know, and like, like something going on there. And then like, there's a thump on the window and a huge beetle has just showed up like a scarab beetle. Like it, 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 now, does that mean that there was a conspiracy to make that happen? I knew another woman who is, um, this is getting into a whole other topic, but let's just say that, that I'm sure many people, maybe you've experienced this when, um, something's up for you, you tend to attract the experiences that match what is up for you, that match the state of mind that you're in. The universe itself is kind of a conspiracy. So when people go into the like deep rabbit holes, weird things start to happen that confirm their beliefs. And that, that relational nature of the universe where we're not just separate individuals in an objective reality, but that that our beliefs, our state of being, um, our our unconscious traumas, et cetera, et cetera, these co-resonate with what comes into our experience. And, and reality seems to align around our state of being. We have to, you know, take this phenomenon of synchronicity into account as well in trying to understand things and not separate so much into self and other. So again, here we are in a very, very uh, philosophical place to, to end our conversation. But Well, thank you, Charles. It was a wonderful conversation. Yep. Cool. Yep. Thanks, thank Tessa. So Always a thank pleasure. You.